Last week, we looked really at the describing the setting uh, of really the Roman world and the Jewish world uh, as we as you begin the New Testament. Today's uh, today's chapter, today's lesson, we're really uh, looking at, I think, what is the most important lesson that really can be learned right now, and I've titled the lesson accordingly, that that Aaron can finish a lesson on time while Andrew numbs. Okay. This is... This this is really what what is largely called what is called by many people the Jesus movement. It it begins in the pages of the New Testament. Uh, it really begins to develop uh, in Acts. Acts uh, is serving as the majority uh, source of material for for this. Uh, and there is some extra biblical uh, resources that can be used to describe the Jesus movement, but. Really, what we're doing is we're looking at Jews and Gentiles in the early church, and we're looking at how it is that the Jesus movement, that, that, the, that the followers of Jesus, the disciples of Jesus, that the church began as a predominantly, almost exclusively Jewish movement centered in Jerusalem. This is a development within the confines of Judaism and how by the end of the, centu- of the first century, it is exclusively Gentile, exclusively outside of Palestine. So we'll be looking at the relationships between the Jews and Gentiles in the early church. We'll be looking at uh, the, the persecution under Nero, and we'll conclude with the Jewish war. So following, following Pentecost... Very early on, Christians are known as uh, followers of the way or, or uh, a sect of the Nazarenes. And this could be uh, uh, adopted from passages like John fourteen six, where Jesus says, I am the way. And they also saw uh, Jesus as the way to the kingdom of God, the way to eternal life. And this early on is seen as a sect within Judaism. It is a you could say it was seen as a denomination of Judaism. Uh, Christians are seen as a kind of Jew. Uh, it is lo- localized. It is centered in Jerusalem. The early church is uh, uh, comprised of predominantly, mostly Jewish believers. And you can see uh, in, in the way that the apostles are preaching in Acts. You see this in Acts 2. Acts 4, Acts uh, 10, Acts 13, Acts 17. Throughout the book, you see the apostles saying, Jesus died and was buried and was rose again according to the scriptures. You see the apostles time and time and time again saying, God didn't just do something new that he didn't say beforehand he was going to do. He provided Jesus according to the scriptures, according to the Old Testament prophets. He died according to the testimony of the prophets. He was resurrected according to the testimony of the prophets. And so early on, Christians were nothing more than Jews trying to be faithful Jews. They had, they had no, um, they did not have um, ambitions to, to 
to take the Jesus movement beyond Jerusalem or for it to, for it to uh, leave Jerusalem and cease in Jerusalem. And so, so, so how then did it leave Jerusalem? Well, it happened really the, the catalyst, the, the, the kickoff for the departure of the gospel to the world really begins when we examine the tensions within the, the early church, uh, specifically with the cultural divide between, uh, you could say, Palestine, Palestinian and Hellenistic believers. You can say Hebrew or Greek Christians. Uh, I think during the study, we called them Greek Jews and Jew Jews. Remember that? Jew Jews, yes. So on the left, you know, and, and so these are going to be, these are going to be uh, beginning with the apostles and, uh, and, and those who are immediately discipled by the apostles. Uh, they, these are going to be the Hebrew Christians, and they're going to be Judeans, or at least uh, from Palestine, because at, at this point, Jews are everywhere, and it's estimated that the, that the Jews comprised up to 7 to 10% of the Roman Empire. They were everywhere, and they multiplied. Uh, but these Jews, these Hebrew Jews, Palestinian Jews, these are Jews who live in Jerusalem, around Ju- Jerusalem, within Judea and Palestine, and they saw themselves as the true Jews, they, 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 are, they are not only the ethnic Jews, but they, they live like Jews. They talk like Jews. They dress like Jews. And if you remember in the, in the Old Testament law, there were, there were things that the law uh, prescribed for the Jews to do so that they would be a distinct and separate people. And so these are the Jews who they, they do their darndest to obey that law. And they, they're going to look at the Hellenistic Jews at the, and this word Helen or Hellenistic, this is, that's, the Greek way to say Greek. If you go to Greece and you, you, you were to see a sign saying, welcome to Greece, it would say, welcome to Hella or Hellas. So, so, so the Hebrew Jews look at the Greek Jews as being compromised. They see themselves as being the true Jews. Uh, they, they think that, that the Jews who are outside of Jerusalem, who are you know, they, they kind of talk like the Greeks. They kind of dress like the Greeks. Maybe they cook like the drinks. The Greeks, those are the compromised Jews. And they predominantly, within Palestine, speak Aramaic. Now, what's interesting is some people think that they spoke Hebrew. They didn't. Hebrew as a language, it was still written and kept by the scribes, but the, the people of the day didn't speak Hebrew. They spoke Aramaic. Hebrew, I believe, was lost before the time of the exile, right, Andrew? Yeah. So they speak Aramaic. The, the Greek Jews, they're, like I said, they were everywhere throughout the Roman Empire. And so these are predominantly those outside of Palestine. And they look at the, at the Jew Jews as, you know, they're staunch, uh, you know, backwards, uh, rigid, fundamentalist, old school Jews. They are more cultured. They're more civilized. They're more modern. So, uh, uh, and they saw the they saw the the the, the Jews as being narrow minded. You know, they're 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 not even aware of the outside world. They're in their own little bubble. Yeah. And and these Jews spoke mainly spoke Greek because that was the lingua franca of the day. 
or the, the English of the day. And you can see this tension between these two groups begin in Acts 6. Now, Acts 4 tells us that, um, that people were selling their property and, 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 and donating their goods and donating their resources to the church, and they were laying it at the apostles' feet. And the church was then distributing uh, these resources to take care of their widows and those who uh, uh, were in need. Well, in Acts 6... The, 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 a complaint arises, and we don't know if this is a justified complaint or, or unjustified. We don't know if they were right or wrong, but the fact of the matter is is the, the, the Greek Jews st- uh, feel that they're being neglected, that their widows are being neglected in Acts 6. Uh, and so the apostles respond to this by forming a team of servants called the deacons, uh, where, where they will take the resources entrusted to them by the church, and on behalf of the church, they're going to go out and make sure that the widows and the needy are being taken care of, uh, particularly the, the Greek, widows, Greek Christian widows in addition to the Palestinian widows. And so uh, uh, it, what's interesting to note is that these men are probably Hellenistic Christians themselves because their names are not uh, Jewish. Uh, where did it see? We have, we have Stephen. We have Philip. You know, Ph- Philip, th- th- these are not Jewish names. If you remember, Philip uh, was, uh, was one of uh, the Tetrarchs, one of Herod's sons, Philip the Tetrarch. Philip was also Alexander the Great's father, the, the man uh, of whom Philippi was named after. These are Greek names. Stephen, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas, who uh, Acts 6 tells us was a proselyte from Antioch. So um, we have this tension between the between these two groups. And this is the apostles' attempt to uh, respond to this, to this tension. Now, that, uh, this characteristic that I described with, with, the, with, the, with the Hebrew Jews and the Greek Jews, that is, that is a general description. There were exceptions. Um, I severely doubt that the apostles themselves uh, would have uh, segregated, had a, had a segregationalist attitude towards the Greek Christians. What is probably the case is, is those who uh, were, were um, delegated the responsibility were themselves uh, neglecting the widows, if that was the case. But that was a general uh, description, and there were exceptions on both sides. Particularly, can you think of one particular Palestinian, uh, uh, Jew, Hebrew Jew who was very sympathetic to the Gentiles? Can you think of, of a Hebrew of Hebrews, one who was zealous for the law, one uh, of whom concerning the righteousness that is found? Yeah, okay, yeah. So there were exceptions. Man, you steal my thunder. So, okay, so we see, we see, this, we see this tension escalate uh, in Acts 7 and 8. And in Stephen's, uh, we could look at Stephen's sermon against the the Jewish council. Now, he's not responding to the Hebrew Christians. He's responding to the Hebrew Jews, the, the Sanhedrin. 
we can see in his sermon against them uh, a, a reflection of the sentiments or a reflection of the arguments that the Hellenist Jews would have made against the Hebrew Jews. And there are three things that I could point out um, in, uh, in Acts 7, 35 and 39. He, uh, exp- he, he reminds them that the Jews have a history of rejecting and, and, and being stubborn and obstinate against the leaders that God appointed. He says in Acts 7.35, Hey, you remember Moses? Your, your fathers disowned Moses. Uh, they were unwilling to be obedient to him. That's in 7.39. And then in 41, they bring up the calf incident. Yeah, you remember that? Your forefathers didn't do so great there. So he reminds them that their that their um, ancestry has a, a history of uh, obstinance against God, and then in seven forty eight he he reminds them that the Most High doesn't dwell in a temple made with hands. So y'all pride yourselves in the fact that you you serve in this temple, you serve around this temple, your worship uh, uh, is uh, involves this temple. At the end of the day, God doesn't dwell in this man-made temple. And then in verses 51 and 53, he, he reaches the crescendo, and he calls them uh, uh, stiff-necked, stubborn mule. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to say the word that he uses, but he, he, he goes on the direct offensive, and, and they, don't, they don't like that. They, they uh, be get, get infuriated. The Palestinian Jews get infuriated, and we see... Uh, beginning with the stoning of Stephen, carried over into the first couple verses of chapter 8. This is the first great persecution against the church. And if you look at chapter 8, verse 1, the very last phrase would would seem to indicate that the apostles and perhaps the Hebrew Christians under their supervision and care, that the Hebrew Christians are exempt. They are not the targets of the Hebrew Jews' hostility. It seems that uh, Stephen himself being a, a, a Greek Christian, as well as the rest of the Greek Christians, they are the ones who are targeted uh, by the hostility of the Hebrew Jews. And so we see in the beginning of Acts 8, especially as now Saul of Tarsus is on the scene. Remember I said last week, that the Sanhedrin had their own uh, police force. They had uh, 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 bands of, of armed people that they could send out to, to do their dirty work. Uh, we see such a group being led by Saul of Tarsus in the beginning of Acts chapter 8. And so they go, uh, they, they start rounding up the uh, Greek Hellenistic Christians, and so Greek Christians flee from Judea. And Acts chapter 8 uh, and following tells us, uh, particularly Acts 8 and Acts 11, tells us where, where these Greek Christians went. Philip, who's one of these deacons, he's one of these Greek Christians, he goes, he himself, along with uh, John and Peter, they go to Samaria. So that you already see this is the first stepping over of a cultural boundary that uh, typically... Jewish Christians were hesitant or found it difficult to do. They go to Samaria, one of the, the long-time hated enemies of, uh, of the Jews. Uh, and then 
on the way, uh, as they're wrapping up in Samaria, we see, um, now, so Samaria is in the north, far to the north of Jerusalem. As uh, John and Peter go, begin to go back to Jerusalem, Philip, maybe he's uh, caught behind or somewhere, he sees the Ethiopian eunuch. This is another Gentile uh, representation. He uh, evangelizes the eunuch, and the eunuch takes the gospel back to Ethiopia. And then this is, the, uh, this is one of those weird passages where, and Philip found himself in Azotus. And it's like, it's not quite clear, but like it, it would appear to seem that this was a, uh, a teleportation or a, a, a zapping of Philip to approximately 50 to 60 miles away from where he just was. There's no explanation to how he got there. So we kind of have to provide the conclusion, he, God, God just moved him. And Azotus is, is all the way on the southwest coast. Do you know where the Gaza Strip is? Does anyone not know where? Okay, I'm getting some head nods. Uh, uh, Azotus is near the very bottom of the Gaza Strip. This is about 50, 60 miles south of Samaria along the coast. And, uh, and Philip just appears there, and he begins uh, preaching there. And then, he pre- and then uh, Acts um, 8 tells us that he preaches in all the cities as he's going back to Jerusalem, which is, this is Gentile territory. So we see, we see the gospel leaving Jerusalem. Acts chapter 10, Peter goes to Cornelius, who is a Roman centurion, Gentile, and uh, Acts tells us that he was a God-fearer. These are one of those uh, uh, Gentiles who they, they are drawn to the Jewish faith, they're drawn to the God of the Jews, and to some extent they try to be kosher uh, there are some things such as circumcision that they weren't, they, they didn't want to do that. Uh, they're, they're not going to be fully Jewish, they're, you know, um, but as far as they can, they're going to, they're going to associate with Judaism. They're going to, they're going to try to fellowship with the Jews and worship the Jewish God. And then in Acts chapter 11, we see, uh, uh, Luke tells us as he's writing that, that those who dispersed because of the persecution of Stephen, because of the stoning of Stephen, that they go to Antioch, Syria, which is in the far north northeast, um, outside of Israel. And there, wait, did I? Am I getting ahead of myself? So there, we see the formation of the first Gentile church. And Acts eleven nineteen says that a great many, a great number believed the preaching of these men. And this is suggestive of an assembly or a congregation. You know, we, we know that Philip, we know that these men have been preaching the gospel uh, in, in all the cities. This is the first time Luke t- uses extra ink, extra papyri to tell us that a great number. This is just like Acts 2 in Acts 4, where it says, a great many were added to the church. A great many believed. So this is uh, suggestive of in the hundreds or in the thousands, a congregation in Antioch, uh, the first Gentile assembly is formed. And here, in in Acts chapter 11, verse, what is it, 26, tells us it is there, 
It is in Antioch. It is, it is in a place outside of Jerusalem, outside of a Jewish community that, that the disciples of the way, that the disciples of Jesus, what are they first called? Christians. And so what this tells us is by this point, the, 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 the pagan world, the Gentile world, the outside world looks at the disciples of Jesus, the, the followers of the way, and they conclude this, these people aren't just another flavor of Jews. They, they aren't just another kind of, of Jews. They're not just another denomination of Jews. They are something different. And so they're called Christians. And ironically, uh, Christian was... Uh, meant to be a, a derogatory. It was, uh, it was meant to be a, a, a word of slander, but the, the Christian said, call me uh, those of Christ or th- those who belong to Christ. I, I'll take that. That's fine. And so what's interesting also about this assembly in Antioch is beginning in Acts chapter 13, a key player uh, is, is summoned to Antioch and begins ministering there and then is sent out and supported by this Antioch assembly. Who do you think that key player is? He's a man who would plant many churches in the Gentile world. Yeah, so Paul is there. And so this this Antioch church is supporting and commissioning and funding the planting of the majority of the churches in the, in the Gentile world in the first century. And what's interesting about Paul is not only is he a champion of Gentile evangelization, he, he is a champion of taking the gospel to those that the Jewish Christians uh, would be hesitant to do so, Paul himself becomes the staunch defender of the, uh, against the Judaizers. Who were the Judaizers? Obviously, they were Jews. But what 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 was their what was their big shtick? It's it's fine if you want to you know believe in this Jesus, but you, you also need to you need to add the law of Moses in as well. You you know you you need to be kosher. You need to be circumcised, and and then you can be a Christian. That, that, that was the shtick of the Judaizers. Paul is, was adamant to say, if, you know, and, and this is where we get the uh, very sobering warning in Galatians. If you add anything, and what he's talking about is, is circumcision. If you add anything to the gospel, it's nothing. Let, let, let anyone who brings that kind of a message, let him be accursed. So... We see from Paul, Jesus plus anything equals nothing. This is all thanks to the gospel uh, going to Antioch. And then the, the, the evangelization of the Gentiles happens largely in part to these Christians, uh, these uh, Greek Christian refugees who fled Jerusalem because of the persecution in Acts chapter 8. They go to Antioch found a church there, and then that, because of the efforts and the support and the funding of that church, the rest of the Roman world gets evangelized over the course of the next 20, 30 years. Okay, so in the early years, we see that persecution mostly, became, mostly came from, uh, at, from the hands of 
uh, unbelieving Hebrew Jews. We, we, we do see as Paul is going out, we see Jews following him and causing a ruckus. Occasionally, we see uh, Gentiles, we see pagan Gentiles uh, um, afflicting the church. Uh, this example, Acts 19, that's, I think, at Ephesus, where um, uh, a, a large number of people convert, and uh, I think uh, that's where the, the, the coppersmiths and the metalsmiths get upset because now their trade, you know, they, they, under the pretense of the great temple of Diana, uh, you know, being threatened, but it really it's because, you know, if everyone converts away from paganism, who's going to buy their idols? So, uh, that's where uh, uh, they get the city into an uproar and they shout for a couple hours, great is Diana, great is Diana. Uh, you know, that's occasionally you see stuff like that, but persecution mainly comes from the, from what source? Jews. And not from the Romans. Rome, the Roman authorities, I mean, especially in Acts chapter 10, uh, Peter goes to a Roman centurion, you know, uh, generally at this point, the Roman authorities are neutral towards the church. They are tolerant of the Christians at first until Nero. Nero is responsible for launching the first official uh, uh, Gentile persecution of the church. And this this doesn't happen empire-wide. It, it is largely... Uh, limited to Rome itself. And this is around uh, 64 AD. Um, now, tradition says that Nero had a building complex. Uh, he was obsessive about making Rome bigger and bigger and bigger and greater. And the problem is you can't make, uh, you can't have a four-story or five-story complex when you already have a one-story complex there. You've got to tear it down and build again. But what happens when the owners of the buildings don't want their building teared down? Nero's solution was burn it uh, without their consent. So tra- tradition says that he, he starts these fires and people begin to put two and two together and figure out it's him. So he needs a scapegoat. And up to this point, you know, Gentiles didn't particularly like Christians. They were kind of oddballs. You know, they do, they do all these weird things behind closed doors, and there's a lot of rumors about what they do, but, you know, there's no, uh, there's no licensed persecution for, for uh, Roman citizens to persecute Christians until uh, Nero says, well, they did it. And so... Uh, Christians now are officially uh, branded as insurrectionists and, and enemies of the state. Um, Eusebius of Caesarea, uh, a, a historian in, the I think, the 3rd century, uh, test, um, testifies that Peter and Paul both were executed under Nero. So they, they died around 64 AD, 64 or 65. And this is all uh, being limited to... Rome, at least for the time being. And, you know, when I preached through First Peter, I went into this into more detail. But the reason why, there's more I could say, but the reason why I just want to say what I said is, you know, the so what of all this is to demonstrate that by this point, Christians, even, especially from Gentile eyes, Christians are identified as something other than 
another flavor of Jews. Because uh, beginning in 161 BC, the Jews were granted friends of Rome status. The friends, ha- uh, the Jews had uh, 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 privileges and a, and a uh, protection that most Gentiles, most um, other pagans didn't have unless they did special favors for the Romans. So even though there has been some hostility over the years, you know, the, we looked last week at a number of revolts that the Jews instigated, they still have this friends of Rome status. The Christians could not be persecuted. You know, that, that, that is a great hurdle for Nero for him to persecute the Christians if they are still seen in the eyes of the world as a, as a kind of Jew. The fact that he so easily uh, uh, persecutes them demonstrates that they are seen by others as not Jews. And then the last thing we'll look at, and this, this will, um, you know, the, 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 big, the spread of the gospel uh, happened because of tension between Jew and Christian. The persecution of Nero demonstrates that 30 years after uh, uh, 30 years of the Jesus movement developing, even the Gentile world is seeing that they are different. The Jewish war, you know, whatever, whatever strand is still connecting Jew and Christian, the Jewish revolt cuts that apart. And, and the aftermath of the Jewish war of, of this revolt, in, uh, which begins about 66, uh, uh, Jerusalem itself is destroyed in 70, and then... Uh, it still uh, go, lingers for for a couple of years. This completely severs any commonality, any relationship that Jew and Christian had by its conclusion. The Jewish war, um, if you remember, we talked about the zealots. They were one of two um, protesting bodies among the Jews. The other uh, protest protesting body were the Essenes. The Essenes protested by withdrawing. You know, they were pacifists. The Zealots protested uh, actively, and they would take matters into their own hands. They were hyper-nationalistic uh, uh, nationalists. And so um, one thing that may have contributed to this is the temple was finished. What, what was about an 80-year building project uh, was completed in 63 A.D., now the, the 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 basic features of the temple were finished by the time at the time of Christ, but there were all of these uh, uh, additional projects that were being done to it. It is finished in 63 A.D. Now some of you may ha- may know what it's like, um, whether you have lived in a community or whether you've had friends in a community where there is a major industry that is the basis of the thriving of that area. What happens? Um, I I, th- I can think of. Uh, like Philadelphia or some places where, um, you know, where there are refineries or coal mills or iron mills uh, or, you know, around here, maybe there were uh, logging mills. What happens when that source of industry is cut off? What happens to the people? Well, I mean, but what if you don't have the means to leave? You know, remember back then, you, you, you can't just rent a U-Haul. Yeah. So uh, you don't have work, you don't have money, uh, discontentment and frustration and depression and anger begins to, begins to rise. So that is likely a, a large, you know, there has already been tension. 
between Jew and Roman. You know, the Jews generally do not like their Roman occupation. The fact that that uh, the major work on this temple, remember Herod's temple was massive. It was it was far greater than um, it was bigger than the temple Solomon built, which was already quite opulent. It was bigger than that. It was far bigger than the um, the one that Ezra and Nehemiah and Hosea built when they returned from the exile. This was a huge, massive temple. A lot of work for 80 years that's over, and now people are angry because they can't put bread on the table. So the, uh, this rebellion begins. The, the, the zealots, which have been around for a while, they're, they're, they're gaining momentum, they're gaining influence, and they succeed in getting the Jewish people to rebel against Rome. They're, they're hoping to recreate uh, basically the, what happened with the Maccabean Revolt uh, back in the 2nd century B.C. Uh, they're trying to recreate that. And if you remember, um, even the Pharisees felt that if they could instigate enough faithfulness on a national level that, that God would cause the, the, um, the Romans to be evacuated. So everyone wants the Romans gone, and the Jews are, are being um, prompted into this, into taking matters into their own hands. They start a revolt, and Rome responds the way Rome responded to revolts, which was what? They crushed them. Uh, over a million Jews are killed. Uh, at least 100,000 are, are taken into captivity and dispersed. The temple itself is destroyed. You remember Jesus' words in Matthew 25, not a single stone is going to be left upon another. Uh, Most of Jerusalem itself is destroyed. Now, what leads to the the relationship between Jew and Christian being completely severed is the fact that the Christians did not take part. The the, the leaders of the church, uh, tradition says that they received a vision that they were to flee, so they don't take part in the rebellion. And the fact that they, um, we see that, that the Jewish Christians view the, the, I'm sorry, the Hebrew Jews look at the Hebrew Christians that are still there. Remember, the Greek Christians are gone. Greek Christians left Acts 8. The Jewish Christians now leave, and the Hebrew Jews look at them as traitors. Where were you when we needed you? Where were you when our families were being slaughtered and our houses were being burned? So, so that widens the gap even further between Jewish people and Christians. And uh, a second effect is that now the Christians, both Christians and, and the Jews, lose their spiritual home. You know, the fact that, that both faiths were centered in Jerusalem and, ar- and around the temple, that's all gone now. That is a major common denominator that they shared together it's now gone. And the uh, Jerusalem itself is going to be quite insignificant in church history for the next 300 years. So they, they both lose their spiritual home. The, the, the Hebrew Jews look at the Christian Jews as being traitors. And then the, 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 the final severance is the fact that, um, you know, the temple has been wiped out. The temple was the priests and the Sadducees' power base. Remember, that that was what funded their whole enterprise. The temple's gone. The Sadducees have nothing left. So they're wiped out. For whatever reason, the Essenes, the the monastic 
protesters. They threw in their lot with the zealots. I don't know why. They, did, they had nothing in common. But uh, they threw in their power with the zealots, and they're all likewise destroyed. And, and any, any hope that standing up against Rome will have any positive effect, will have any positive outcome, is completely obliterated because look at what the Romans just did. So the zealot movement snuffed out. There's only one group of Judea, uh, one sect within Judaism that's, that remains. And ironically, this is the one group that had a resource that they could take with them, which is what? What did the, remember what, what, what did Andrew describe the Jews and Christians as being? People of the book? The, this one sect of, what was the sect of Jews that were, that were centered on the scriptures? I, I know what it says. I want to hear someone else say it. It was the Pharisees. Thank you, Jack. 15 points to House Moyer. So the Pharisees, they, um, uh, what was the name? It wasn't, uh, it was Jamnia in the far southwest. They resettle in Jamnia, which is, which is outside, I think it's outside Jerusalem. And what they do is that they now, are uh, reforming and solidifying, they're reforming Judaism, they're solidifying their influence. They are now the sole influence, they are the sole body that is shaping the future of Judaism, uh, which is why we still have rabbinic Judaism to this day. And they place a curse, Uh, they they write into the, uh, you know, if you remember, those of you who were here yesterday, Andrew was going over the, the various authorities that the Jews have, they put in those authorities within the Jewish liturgy a curse on Christians. So up to this point, you know, you see Paul in Acts going into the synagogue and trying to reason with the Jews. To, to some level, Christ, Christians could still enter synagogues and could still mingle and be, and be accepted, as long, maybe as long as they didn't cause too much of a ruckus, they could still be accepted within the synagogue. Can't do that anymore. The Pharisees put into, into their liturgy a curse on all Christians that Christians cannot be welcomed. And so whatever, whatever possibility that Jew and Christian could still look each other eye to eye and reason with one another, you can't have that anymore. All right, so that concludes this chapter. And so, any questions? And that, Andrew, is how you end on time.